Okay, we, uh, we are in the midst of uh, our study uh, over the last several weeks now. This is part three. We're, we've been looking at one of the most uh, famous, one of the most precious, one of the most treasured portions of prophecy of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament from the, from the book of uh, Isaiah. It was the inspiration. I mentioned in our first uh, introduction to this, it was the inspiration behind uh, Handel's Messiah, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that, that, that has been thought to be one of the greatest compositions of music that's ever been written. And, and the inspiration behind that was, was Isaiah 9-6. And we're going to look at Isaiah 9-6 once again. And uh, if, if you notice, uh, Jesus has been ascribed to so many titles in, uh, in both the Old Testament and New Testament. He's He's referred to as uh, the Word of God. He's called the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and and, and Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, and and, and all of that. And I tell you what, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I uh, was writing devotionals once a week, and I'd send them out by email. And I think maybe, you know, there's going to come a time again when I'm going to get back into writing. But... But uh, I, I did that for two years. I, I, I wrote over 104 different uh, devotionals about the, the titles and names of Jesus. And, and I did not exhaust that subject, believe me. In fact, what I want to say is that, is that not even a couple of dozen or even a couple of hundred could, could sum up all of the wonder and the majesty of, of who this Jesus the Messiah is. And and so what a, what a privilege it is for me to be able to talk to you about him. Last week, uh, last week I said that we must never, never think of Jesus as God only or as man only. That, that he is the God-man and that, that the eternal one became in the fullness of time joined to our humanity two natures in one glorious person that we must never think of Jesus as simply man alone or simply God alone, but as, but as the God-man who eternally will, will be known as the God-man, who, who in the paradox of, of his complex person uh, was hungry and yet he fed thousands. He was thirsty, yet he turned water into wine. He, was, he, was, he, was, he, he died, yet he raised the dead. He, he was rejected by men, yet he was worshipped by angels. He was the Lord from heaven, and yet he's called in Scripture the, the last Adam. Uh, but by the way, something that really kind of uh, irks me as a preacher, especially among pre- preachers, when preachers make the mistake of inversing that and say that Jesus is the second Adam, and, and, and no, he's not the second Adam. See, that implies, and be very careful in my presence, don't you say that, you know, but, but, but it implies, because the first Adam failed, there, there was the necessity for a second Adam. That second Adam is the last Adam. There will never be another Adam after him. But, but he is the second man, the Lord from heaven, meaning that so many of us who have joined ourselves in faith to Christ, we, we've become in that number, the third, the fourth, the fifth in Christ. And what a privilege it is to be in Christ. I mean, think about, think about, think about it, that today, seated on the throne of the universe, 
the one who has all power and authority, is our next of kin, is our, is our kinsman redeemer, is, is the one who is called to us a, a friend closer than a brother, who, who is our, a member of the human race, the, the man Christ Jesus, fully, very God, very man. But, but there is a man seat, seated upon the throne. The very thing that Lucifer lusted for, the desire to, to sit upon the throne of God, God now shares with our humanity. And for those of us in Christ, we are seated together in heavenly places with Christ. We are heirs of God and joined heirs with Christ. Jesus said, if you will overcome, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne just as I have overcome and have sat down upon my Father's throne. Do you realize the destiny that we have in Christ, that we will judge angels, that we will rule the universe together with Christ? This is, this is beyond uh, human imagination. It is, it is a wonder, and that's why we call him wonderful. And and he, the scripture says, and I'll look at that at another time, but he and the sons of God are set for signs and for wonders, that, that we are likewise to be expressing his wonderful person. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 9 one more time this morning. And Isaiah chapter 9, looking at verse 2, the people walking in darkness, to give it a little context, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned light coming into this world of darkness, light shining into the darkness. Paul speaks about God who commanded the light. He said, let there be light. God who commanded the light, commanded the, the glorious gospel to come into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the Most High God, to give us the knowledge of God. For to us, a child is born and to us the Son is given. The, the, the way that I read that in the first part of this series, I said we must personally come to the place where we now read into that, that unto me a child is born, unto me a son has been given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. I could hear, I could hear Handel's Messiah, the Mighty God the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His kingdom and its peace will never end. I don't know about you, but verse 2, the verse that we just read about the light shining in the darkness, reminds us, it reminds me of, the, of John's prologue of the gospel after his name, John, uh, as he begins and he says that this, this same word that was in the beginning with God and was God, it was the life and the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness, one translation says, could not comprehend it. Another translation says, the darkness could not overpower it. Darkness is the absence of light. And in the light of God, God who, the Bible says, God is light. And John ascribes to, in fact, the, the whole purpose of John's gospel is to, to ascribe deity to Jesus. Uh, seven great I am titles are found in the gospel of John. I am the, the true vine. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. All of these things are synonymous with the great I am that revealed himself to Moses, saying I am that I am, the self-existent one, 
this is the one that we're talking about. In part one, we talked about wonderful, how Jesus is absolutely fitting in, 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 of his name. In part two, we, we combined the first two names, wonderful counselor. This morning, I want to talk to you about the third title, that he is the mighty God, meaning that he is the strong God, the, the, the God Almighty, the, the mighty one of Israel. Uh, El Gabor in Hebrew, meaning the, the, the mighty hero of his people. The simplest definition of the word might or power is the ability to produce effects or to accomplish what one wills. And the Bible clearly not only says that God is able to accomplish what he wills, but he does it infinitely. He, he does it without limitation. He is omnipotent. He, he is infinite in his power. Jeremiah said, Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens by your outstretched but, but, but you have made by your power and by your outstretched arm. We talk in, in Isaiah, I love Isaiah 40, where it talks about God holding the, the oceans in the crevices of his hand, that he stretched the universe out by the spans of his arm. That listen, the universe, as great and as glorious and as mind-boggling as it is, yet God is greater than the universe he created, just as a man is greater than, he's more than the house that he builds. So God is greater. He is the ruler, the king of creation. No one can resist his power. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Mary asked the angel Gabriel, how can I, being a virgin, conceive and have a child since I don't have any involvement with a man? And the angel responded by saying, with God, all things are possible. But even more, even more amazing than that, is when Jesus was expounding upon the fact that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It would be like a camel going through the eye of a needle. But he said this, he said, but with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Our salvation is only possible because God is the author of our salvation. He is the one from beginning to end will accomplish this great thing called salvation. He is the mighty God. He can do all things. Now, now so, some people, Unitarians and, and others who, who, who claim to be Christians, and, and I, I hate even to use that because I tell you what, listen, I, I was born into a Christian family or so-called Christian. I was baptized when I was an infant, but I wasn't a Christian until I was probably around 25 years old when I personally came into an encounter with Christ. And it may have started years before as a child responding to a gospel message, but, but being a Christian is, is really being somebody who is a Christ follower, who believes, who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Son of Man, that, that, that he's come to redeem us. Now, 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 some will argue with me about the interpretation of that verse and say, no, that doesn't mean he's the mighty God. I, I would say that there is more proof than just this one verse that he is, in fact, the mighty God. And I want to share some of those with you this morning. But to make a mistake about the deity of Jesus, about the person of Jesus, about his identity is, is, is more than a mistake. It's more than willful ignorance. It is, it is, it is nuclear meltdown. It is, it is critical mass. It is, well, let, let me give you the words of Charles Spurgeon. He said, we do continually affirm that an error with regard to the divinity of Christ is absolutely fatal. 
and that a man cannot be right in his judgment upon any part of the gospel unless he thinks rightly of him who is personally the very center of all the purposes of heaven and the foundation of all the hopes of earth. If you're wrong about Jesus, you're wrong about everything. He said, this is eternal life, that you might know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Now, that, now that's sounds like most of us probably are in agreement with that. But did you know that there was a survey by the Pew Form uh, Foundation of 35,000, that's not a small sampling, 35,000 Americans about religious life and, 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 and public life, right? And, and the majority, listen, of, of the religious Americans that were, that were interviewed believe that all religions lead to eternal life. Of, of, of those that I'm talking about now, of mainline Protestants, 83% believe that all religions lead to eternal life. Mainline Protestants would be, would be Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and alike, right? Uh, among, among black, historic black Protestant churches, 59%. Among Roman Catholics, 79% believe that all religions lead to eternal life. Among Jews, 82%. Among Muslims, 56% believe that all religions lead in direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches and to what Jesus especially said. Now, I think that part of that, part of that error, part of that fatal flaw, that fatal error that Spurgeon talked about is probably is conducive because of the political correct atmosphere in which we're living in, in which in which our insistence that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life to God is somehow is somehow arrogant and is somehow uh, uh, harsh in our judgment. And, and because of this hypersensitivity environment that we find ourselves in, some people are backing off from believing that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life. But Jesus was unapologetic about his de- declaration that no man can come to the Father except it be by me. Listen, any other way, Jesus said, the same as a thief and a robber. Only in Jesus and in Christ alone can we have a relationship with God, a holy God. You see, the Bible says, in spite of what other so-called Christians or so-called religions speak about having mediators between you and God and, 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 and Mary or saints or, or whatever, there's only, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God in perfect wisdom, listen, who, who else is qualified to, to lay one hand on man because he is man and another hand on God because he is God? That, that's what a, an interce- that a mediator does. He, he, he bridges the gap between two parties that are in or, or that are estranged from each other. Who, who else is qualified to do that? An angel would not be so presumptuous. What man could lay his hand on, on the Almighty God? What, what angel would lay his hand on God? Even the seraphim, who are the, who are the highest-ranking angelic beings in the universe, cover their faces in the presence of God. They would not be so presumptuous. But God in his wisdom has provided for us one who is a mediator who could lay his hand perfectly on the Godhead and perfectly 
perfectly on man because he is both God and both man. See the wisdom in this? It, it, it just blows us away, doesn't it? In his book, I was just wondering, Philip Yancey uses this illustration that, that just so blessed me. Uh, let me just ask you a question. How, how many of you have now or have had in the past either goldfish or, or tropical fish? Let me just see your hands. All right, everybody, look at that. Just take a look around. Just keep your hands up for a minute. A lot of you. So you're going to really appreciate, you know, you, maybe you had those, what do you call those uh, fighting fish? You know, you can't put them together with other fish because they kill each other, you know? That sounds like a lot of people, right? But, 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 but think about it. He writes this, and so let, let, let me read this portion from his book. It's titled, Communicating with Small-Brained Water Dwellers. Okay? Yancey shares some lessons that he learned from managing and owning an aquarium of fish, right? He said, the arduous demands of aquarium management have taught me the deep appreciation for what's involved in running a universe based upon dependable physical laws. He says, to my fish, that's his words, he says, I am deity. And one who does not hesitate to intervene, I balance the salts and the trace elements in their water. No food enters their tank unless I retrieve it from the freezer and drop it in. They would not survive without a constant supply of electricity to the device that brings them oxygen in their water. And listen, I heard stories during, during the, the storm, Sandy, that, that, that guys were, were hooking up their fish tanks to generators. You know, right? Forget about the house. The fish got to you know, survive, right? He says, he says this. He says, Whatever I mu- whenever I must treat an infection, I face an agonizing choice. Ideally, I should move the infectious fish to a quarantine tank in order to keep the others from pestering it and to protect them from contagion. But such violent intervention in the tank, the mere act of chasing the sick fish with a net could do more damage than the infection. Stress resulting from the treatment itself may actually cause death. He says, I often long for a way to communicate with those small-brained water dwellers out of ignorance they perceive me as a constant threat i cannot conceive excuse me they cannot conceive of my concern for them i am too large for them my my actions too incomprehensible my acts of mercy they see as cruelty my attempts at healing they view as destruction then he says this to change their perception would require a form of incarnation. I get chills in my body when I said that. Because in God's universe, in God's economy, we are small-brained earth dwellers, incapable of grasping the incomprehensible God who daily sustains us. Too often we see his acts of generosity and kindness and benevolence as acts of cruelty. But Jesus took on flesh and he climbed into the tank of our existence, became one with us. The word became flesh to dwell among us. And even even with an illustration like this, it falls short because because there is a huge gap between us and, and tropical fish, right? But who could measure the gap between us creatures? Because 
because we're still talking about creature to creature. Who can measure the gap between the infinite God and us earth dwellers, us human beings? So, so when we come across a verse like this from, from Zephaniah 317, does this not blow you away? Listen, the Lord your God is in your midst or is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Ken, I don't know if you sing over your fish or not. Maybe you, maybe you talk to them. Maybe you try to communicate to them. How many of you try singing to your fish? Remember the fish you had? I babysat for them for your one time. Remember you guys went on vacation? And Grandma, Papa and, and, and Grandma, we babysat for you. I didn't try singing over them, but God, he sings over us. He rejoices over us. He takes delight in us. Now, here's the point, that either Jesus is exactly who he said he is, that he is very God, that he is the son of God, son of man, or he is the greatest imposter and the greatest deceiver that's ever existed, who is, who is listen, if, if he was lying, then, then he was worthy of the death that he received because his crime was the crime of blasphemy for he made himself to be equal with God. But because he is very God, he is innocent of the charge of blasphemy. And therefore, because of that, we are not guilty of idolatry and we are not in our sins and, and, and we are, listen, we are not to be pitied among all men. Otherwise, if he was not God, then our preaching would be worthless and our faith would be in vain. But because he is who he is, very God, very man who has entered into the tank of our existence to make himself known so that we would, we would understand the embrace of the hand of the infinite creator. He is very God of very God. The New Testament writers establish that he is God. And, and, and this, is, this is why this is so paramount. This is, why, this is so important to, to, to the doctrine of salvation because this is what made his blood so efficacious. This is not just the blood of a good man or of a perfect man, but this is the blood of God whom, whom the Apostle Paul says, feed the flock of God which, you, which is, he has purchased in his blood. What made his sacrifice so so precious, so priceless was the fact that this was none other than the creator himself who's come among us. I guess, I guess some demons are smarter than human beings because even the demons understood and recognized who Jesus was. They, they said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us? And the answer to that is yes. And only God has the prerogative to do that. Even Michael, the Bible says, did not bring a railing accusation against, against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Only God has that prerogative. He had power over death. It's one of the evidences of, of who he was. Not only did he raise Jairus' daughter from, the, from, from, from death and, 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 and the widow's son from Nain, but, but, but it, it took a man whose body had begun to, to, to decay, whose body, in the words of his sister began to smell and to stink, especially in that atmosphere of the Middle East, without embalming, 
And Jesus raised the man who had been dead for four days. But you know, because he's the mighty God, four days or four, four weeks or 40, 40 years or even 4,000 years wouldn't have mattered one single thing. Because if you're the mighty God, there's nothing that shall be impossible with you. We have the witness of heaven. On two occasions, three occasions in all, but two occasions, the, the heavens broke silence and, and the voice of the Father was heard to say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's documentation of that. We ascribe to Jesus immutability. Immutability is, is that all of us as creatures, we change, but God does not change. We say Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Micah foretold of his eternality in Micah 5, 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are smallest among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, that is from ancient days, from everlasting. And my understanding of the word everlasting is it has no beginning as well as it has no ending. It has no origin of beginning. And only God can fulfill that classification of being from everlasting. Those who knew him intimately, those who knew him well, those who, who rubbed shoulders with him, who laid their head on his, on his breast, they, they could testify, we've never seen a man like this before, that even the wind and the sea obeyed him. Only God can do that. The mighty God, Jesus is. And they scratched their heads and they said, what, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea does obey him? But I, I, I suppose the greatest evidence, the greatest infallible proof that he is who he said he is, 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 is spoken by Paul in his prologue to the, to the book of Romans. In Romans 1.4, he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead the evidence that he is who he said he was because he was triumphant over death and over sin and over the grave. And although he slept in the heart of the earth for three days, in fulfillment of prophecy, his body did not see corruption because it was impossible that he should be held in the bands of death. He burst the bands of death asunder as he rose again from the dead. The champion, the strong, the mighty, the mighty God is he. Amen? He's the mighty God. And in all this, God is making known to us what, have could, what could have never otherwise been known had Jesus not entered into the tank of you and I as our small brain earth dwellers that we are. And to make known the incomprehensible, the light of the glorious gospel. Augustine put it this way, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tied on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength might grow weak, and the healer might be wounded, that life might die. No human being could have ever imagined a story like this. When the human default of our heart is on legalism and on self-righteousness, 
no human mind could have ever imagined that salvation must be by grace and by grace alone so that no man should boast, but that it's through faith and through grace that we have a relationship with him. The illogical disobedience of the first man, Adam, that he should not trust and love and obey the one who is infinitely gracious has been met with the absurdity of the cross. God sought to meet the absurdity of the rebellion with the absurdity of the cross to make known this simple fact that for love's sake, God became as humble as man had become proud. Think about that. God had become as humble as man had become proud. For some of these reasons, plus an additional 320 fulfillments of, of Old Testament prophecy, I believe in putting my eternal destiny, my, my eternal life on the well-being that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, the Son of God, the Son of Man. It's not a risk for me. I believe that. And many of you believe that as well, that he is who he said he is. What I want you to take away this morning is simply this, that the greatest might the world has ever known, listen, mightier than creation, the greatest might that the world will ever know is God who became as humble as a man had become proud. God who had become as humble as a man had become proud. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and having humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Last week I said that if God were weak, then the weakness of God would be stronger than all the might of men, and that is so true. But God shows himself strong, not only in creation, but to me the, the greater strength is, 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 is the voluntary surrender of his rights, the voluntary submission, the voluntary obedience to the point of death. That, that is strength. When you can annihilate, collapse the universe as though it never even existed, but you don't. Rather, you choose to die for it to die for the creatures in it. To me, that is the greatest demonstration of not only the wisdom of God, but of the power of God. For Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. J.B. Phillips is a, an English, he was an English scholar. He, he, he wrote a translation of the New Testament. And he wrote something interesting about Christmas that I wanted to share with you. He said, a far cry from all the festivities of the Christmas season, the reality of the event we celebrate is quite different. What we are, in fact, celebrating is the awe-inspiring humility of God. No amount of familiarity with Christmas should ever blind us to the quiet but explosive significance. For Christians believe that so great is God's love and concern for humanity that he himself became man. 
amid the sparkle and the color and the music of the day celebration, we do well to remember that God's insertion of himself into human history was achieved with almost frightening quietness and humility. There was no advertisement, no publicity, no special privilege. In fact, the entry of God into our world, his world, was almost heartbreakingly humble. In sober fact, there was little romance or beauty about a young woman looking desperately for a place where she can give birth. And it's a bitter commentary upon the world that no one was willing to give up a bed for her or for the Son of God that would be born. Then he writes this. This almost beggarly beginning has been romanticized by artists and poets throughout the centuries, yet I believe, concludes Phillips, he says that at least once a year we should look steadily at the historical fact that God invaded our world. We shall be celebrating no beautiful myth, no lovely piece of traditional folklore, no, no, sol- no but a solemn fact. God has been here once historically, but, and I love this part, as millions will testify, I'm one this morning, that he will come again with the same silence and the same devastating humility into any human heart ready to receive him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, I don't want to use the word Christian because you may have been born baptized as an infant, but if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm so glad that you are here. And my hope and our, we've been praying for you and our prayer for you is that you would discover just how amazingly wonderful Jesus is. And he, listen, he takes lives that are broken. He takes lives that don't work and he makes something wonderful out of them because he is wonderful. He is counsel. He is the mighty God. He does that in the hearts of those that can receive him. If you will receive him this morning, something wonderful will begin to happen today. Today can be your birth date in the kingdom of heaven. You see, the mighty God desires to come in humility into your heart. So great is he that he now is not only the mighty God, but he is the mighty God in me and the mighty God in those that believe so that we could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so that we can face even the, the horrific tragedies that we read about, that we hear about, that we sometimes even experience, that we could face it with the hope of eternal life, that there is a that there is another world that is coming, a world that will be free from pain and sorrow and death and sin and where there will be no more sickness and disease. The one who said it is finished from the cross said, behold, I make all things new. And he wants to make all things new in you this morning. If you're here this morning, I I hope you will just start a conversation with God by just simply saying, Jesus, I receive you. I accept you into my heart the way others have in this place. It's not, it's not magical words. It's faith. It, it embraces, it receives the gift of God. And for those of you this morning, you've been walking with the Lord for many years. 
I, I believe like me, you, you, you never get over the wonder of it all. Never will you get over the wonder of this. In fact, for all eternity long, we will still be amazed as we discover, as, we, as, as we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, we will still be amazed at how awesome and how wonderful is this plan God has for those who love him. And we can only love him because he first loved us. Receive his love this morning. And the mighty one will come into your heart as you receive him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning. You're so great. Are you, your concerning care for us that if we could somehow relate, so many people raise their hands, they own tropical fish, and so many understand what it's like to chase a little fish around in the tank when you mean well, when you want to clean their tank, when you, when you want to do them some good. And we don't understand all of the ways of God because they're incomprehensible to us, but you came so that we would, we would lay hold of the hand of God that, God, you came in the midst of us, just as us, to so identify with us so that you would be sympathetic and that you would be compassionate in all of our needs and all of our longings. So I pray this morning, Father, that you'd search the house today and that, that there wouldn't be one person that would leave this place who, who, who did not discover the reality that Jesus, you want to be mighty in them if they will receive you, if they will just simply say, Jesus, come into my heart. You will enter in, in your humility and in your meekness, you will come in and bring about transformation in their lives. Would you do that, Lord, as we, as we get ready to close this service and celebration and as we lift up song to you, we remember that verse that the Lord our God is mighty in our midst, that he rejoices over us. He will quiet us in his love and he will sing over us. I pray this morning that you will join in, Jesus, as you sing and rejoice over your people today. And we all sit together, amen. Let's all stand together one more time this morning.